Mark chapter 10, and we pick it up in verse 13. It says, And they were bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. And Jesus took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands upon them. Lord, this morning as we've opened your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our spirits to your truths. That this morning, God, you would impart to us individually and congregationally a heart for the youth. Jesus, we see here very clearly that you were tremendously concerned for them. That you took them up in your arms, God, and you loved them. We ask that you would make us a people and a congregation that would do the same. And we ask also that we would have, as taught here, a childlike faith. Lord, we would confess that we are too wise for our own good. We would confess that often we believe ourselves to become mature in our faith, all the while our faith grows cold. We ask that this morning, as the Spirit ministers through your word, you would increase our faith, you would simplify our faith, it would indeed become childlike and powerful before you. And so God, here we are longing for a work. God, save us this morning from church. Don't let this be some silly religious experience. We want to experience the living God in truth. We want to know you more. We want to be transformed more into your image that we might lead more people to you. So God, you've got to come and speak to us now. You've got to do this work. In Jesus' name, amen. In our text today, we see that Jesus is dealing with the spirituality of children. And we're going to see here that he affirms and he upholds the spirituality of children. We're going to learn that often we underestimate it while Christ Jesus had a high view of it. We are also going to learn that with regards to salvation, that is being saved from our sins in the penalty thereof, that Jesus exclaims that we must come to him like a child. And that unless we come to him as a child, we will in no way experience heaven. What does that mean exactly? We'll discuss it in a few minutes. We are also going to discuss the fact that in the same way that we come to the Lord with a childlike faith, we are to grow in the Lord with a childlike faith. That the disciples of Christ Jesus, you and I, those who are Christians, are called to be childlike. Not childish, as I often am but childlike. We see that there's a conflict here between the agenda of Jesus and the agenda of the disciples. And we can attribute it somewhat to the cultural climate of the day. You understand that during the time of Jesus, the Romans were the dominating world influence. And so even in Israel during that time, which was ruled by the Romans, there was an increasing flavor of Roman culture. But prior to the Romans being the world power, the Greeks were the world power. 
And so there was about 300 years before the coming of Christ, a development throughout the East of Grecian or Hellenistic culture, as it is sometimes called. Those are synonymous terms. And so we understand that the New Testament is set in, of course, a biblical context, a Hebraic or Jewish context, but also a Greek cultural context and an overlapping Roman context. And what is interesting is that in Greek society during the time, children were not always valued. It depended upon their usefulness for the family. If they were going to be of some tremendous import and use to the family, then they were considered valuable. If not, they were considered throwaways. This was a Hellenistic or Grecian culture of the day. We have in our possession a papyrus letter written by a man named Hilarion to his expectant wife Alice. It's dated June 17th, 1 BC. And a portion of the letter reads this. If it was a male child, let it live. If it was a female, cast it out. You see, in that culture, the male was considered useful for the family, the female not so. And if they already had too many females, let her go. If it was a male, well, we need them. It's the same in certain cultures around the world today. Very interesting. But it was predominant in the context of the New Testament. Roman culture, as it began to gain influence into the first century, was not much different. It was not much better with its view of children. Understand that Roman law gave the father absolute power over the family. That included the power over life and death. In fact, historians have on record as late as A.D. 60, 60 years after Jesus Christ was born, that a Roman boy was put to death at the command of his father. Perfectly legal, perfectly acceptable in the Roman Empire. Did turn out to be a pile, didn't it? But we also see this culture reflected in Herod. Herod was the Roman ruler over the region. And we know from Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, that Herod didn't like the fact that the Messiah had been born. And so he commanded that all male children under the age of two in Israel be killed during that time. You remember that from Matthew chapter 2. A tremendously low view of children. And that makes up much of the cultural context of the New Testament. Now, with that in mind, what we see happening in our text is that this Greco-Roman culture is clashing with the disciples' biblical worldview or what they ought to have as a biblical worldview. You see, in the Jewish culture, in the biblical mindset of the day, family and children were extremely important. The Bible teaches from beginning to end that children are a gift from God. That they are to be valued and treasured and the family unit is elevated. We spoke a little bit of that last week. We see it expressed succinctly in Psalm 127 verses 3 through 5. It reads like this. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And so the disciples are coming primarily from a Jewish background. That is their roots. They are Jews. 
And the Jewish identity and the Jewish culture is rooted and founded in biblical concepts. And yet they are having to interact with the pagan world around them, the Greco-Roman situation. And so we see that the predominant culture begins to influence the disciples, sometimes eroding, sometimes even erasing their biblical worldview. It's the same for you and I today. It's clear what the Bible says, and we as Christians ought to have a biblical worldview. We ought to know what that is. We ought to be able to uphold it and defend it and cling to it. And yet sometimes the pressure of men and the pressure of society and the ideals of the world would cause us to sort of let go of biblical ideals and begin to look like the world around us. It's much easier to go with the flow than it is to go against the flow. And Christians are always going to be going against the flow. And so it happened to the disciples, as so often happens to us, they began to take on some of the ideology of the world around them. And that is why in verse 13, it says, They, meaning Jewish parents, were bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. The disciples said, Listen, the rabbi, the teacher, the master, he hasn't got time for your kids. Your kids can't enter into any sort of theological debate. Your kids can't contribute to the ministry here in any meaningful way. This is the Messiah. He's the king of of Israel. Don't bring the kids around. He's very busy. And we're told in our text that Jesus sharply rebukes them. Understand that what the Jewish adults were doing was a Jewish custom of the time. It started way back in Genesis 48, 14. When Manasseh and Ephraim were brought to Jacob, also known as Israel. And Joseph asked Jacob to put a blessing or to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Jacob or Israel put his hands upon them and prayed and pronounced a blessing upon them. And from that time in Jewish culture and to today, the Jews would bring their children to rabbis or to leaders or to patriarchs and they would say, please bless my children. And so this is what they were joyfully doing with Jesus. And we see that Jesus responded in the customary way in verse 16. And he took the children up in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands upon them. But the disciples, being influenced by their culture instead of their Bible, began to rebuke the parents for bringing their children. I want to highlight the response of Jesus. It says in verse 14, But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Extremely strong word in the Greek. It comes from two other words, much and to grieve. Put very simply, he was very grieved. It is the only time that this particular phrase is used in the New Testament. An extremely strong word. Jesus was mad. We don't like it, do we? We don't like it when Jesus is mad. Remember the story when he came in and he cast out the money changers in the temple? That he made a whip and he came in and he drove them out for perverting the house of God? Read your Bible. Sometimes God is upset. And at this moment, it says that our Lord was indignant. He was very upset. It has been said in the past The things that grieve us or make us indignant reveal much about the kind of people we are. Understand that? 
You can begin to discern what kind of person you are and what sort of values you have by what makes you mad. Are you mad when you're personally offended? You might be all about self. Are you mad when trees are cut down? You might be an environmentalist. Are you mad when things are contrary to the precepts of God, the Word of God, the Kingdom of God, the Church of Jesus Christ? You might be a Christian. But we can begin to discern what kind of person we are by what makes us angry. And it speaks volumes here about our God. Understand that Jesus, according to the book of Hebrews chapter 1, is the exact representation of the nature of God. That He is God in the flesh. Colossians chapter 2 tells us that in no uncertain terms. Colossians chapter 1, excuse me. And so Jesus reveals the heart of God when he gets upset that the kids were being hindered. And he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Very simple point here. Very clear. God loves the kids. God loves the children. Let me highlight it for you again from verse 16. Verse 16 once again. And Jesus took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands upon them. He wasn't a removed religious figure. He wasn't a self-righteous Pharisee or a rabbi who felt like he couldn't be belittled by being with the children. Jesus, the God of the universe draped in humanity, stooped down and lifted the children into his arms. Can't you see it? The Lord holding the children in his arms. And it says that he began blessing them. The form of that verb is the only time that we see it worded that way in the New Testament. It it means that he began fervently blessing them. Not like some silly religious man, bless you, bless you, bless you. (laughs) Not that. He picked them up in his arms and he was laying hands upon them and he was fervently blessing them. What did that mean with his words? We don't know. But we know what it meant in his heart. That God was extremely concerned with the children of the day. That he loved the kids. That he sharply rebuked his own disciples in the presence of many that the children might have access to him. And that he held them in his arms. There were still lepers that needed to be healed. There were still people that needed to hear the good news of the kingdom. He is now on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. There were still Pharisees that needed to be set right. There was a lot that had to happen in the kingdom of God. But Jesus took time to embrace the children and to fervently bless them and interact with them. And so it follows, because the Lord is our example as Christians and as a church, that the church and individual Christians should follow suit. And historically speaking, sometimes the church has, sometimes the church hasn't. But the church, because of Christ Jesus in our example here, should have a tremendous concern for children. The word used here in Mark for children denotes those from infants to preteens. So from babies up to about 12 years old. Luke uses another word that means just infants and toddlers. So if we put the two gospel accounts together, we see that Jesus was embracing everyone from little brand newborn babies to about 12-year-old kids. In his arms. The early church was growing in that culture where infanticide was acceptable, the killing of children for family purposes. 
And the church was the first voice in the world to reject this. The church spoke out against it and said family is important to us and we do not cast out our children, contrary to Greek culture and Roman culture and even Roman law. We value them as a gift from God because that is what the Bible tells us to believe. And so today, our church, us as Christians, should give great attention to children even when there are other needs that seem more pressing. As adults, our needs always seem the most important. Huh? They do. (laughs) Unless you have a a, a three-month-old that's puking all over herself, like mine is the last few days, your needs are always more important. But it ought not to be so in the church of God. It ought not to be so with Christians. I have a friend, and he has a friend. I know this sounds precarious, but it's true. It's a friend of a friend. But I have a friend who has a friend who is from Ventura. And this man from Ventura used to run a skate park down there. And now he runs a skateboard ministry for Michael W. Smith. You might know him from the Christian music industry. Michael W. Smith is uh, friends with President George Bush. And because of the connection between Michael W. Smith and George Bush, this youth leader, this skate park facilitator, was given an opportunity to meet with George Bush. This happened just recently. And he was extremely excited about this. Being a leader amongst the Christian youth in our nation, he was excited to sit down with a president who is himself a Christian and dialogue with him. He had all sorts of grandiose thoughts. Man, here's what's plaguing our youth. Here's what we need to address. I would like to share this with the president. I'd like to get his thoughts on that. We are going to have some meaty dialogue about the condition of the youth in America. And as sort of a selling point, this man took with him a couple of kids from the skate park. Just normal skate kids, you know what I mean. When they met with President George Bush... The president almost entirely ignored the youth leader. He pulled up a chair and sat face to face with the kids and he began to share with them his testimony from beginning to end. That Jesus Christ is his Lord and Savior and that without him he is lost. You see, the president, the leader of the free world gave importance to children over adults. How many other things does the president have to do? Oh, just a few. But he took time for just a couple of skate kids to look them in the eyes and say, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about my life and how it was changed and how I live it now. That is Christianity, amen? George MacDonald is a great Christian that died exactly 100 years ago. And at one time he wrote this. I doubt a man's Christianity if children are never found playing around his door. (laughs) George MacDonald. I doubt a man's Christianity if children are never found playing around his door. Why? Because in our text, they were around the door of Jesus. They were there. They were wanting access to him. They wanted to be with him. And so we see, not only does Jesus love the children, and not only should we follow him in that, but we see that he affirms and respects their spirituality. He affirms and respects their spirituality. Look at it in verse 14. 
Second part, Jesus speaks and says, Permit the children to come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Not meaning yet adults who are like these, meaning exactly what he said. Children like these have a place, a predominant and important place. In fact, the kingdom of God belongs to these children, he said. He's saying here that kids have spiritual capacity. That they are able to understand the gospel. That they are able to comprehend some of the basic things of God. That they are able to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord. Little kids, understand there were infants here. At what age, Brett? I don't know what age. But it's never too soon to start explaining to them the gospel. Amen? My son is not yet four years old. I don't know how many times I have preached the gospel to that boy. But you see, adults often underestimate the spiritual capacity of children. Jesus didn't do that. He affirmed it. He respected it. He highlighted it. J.C. Riley, who died 105 years ago, wrote this. Speaking of kids, they think in their childish way about God and their souls and a world to come far sooner and far more deeply than most people are aware. They are far more ready to respond to appeals to their feeling of right and wrong than many suppose. This great Bible commentator and author says that children are more ready to respond to the things of God than many suppose. I'll go a little further and say that children are more ready to respond to the things of God than many adults. This has been my experience as I have had the opportunity to preach the gospel and to teach the Bible around the world. When I get an opportunity to go teach the Bible somewhere at a church or a conference or a camp or something like that, I am always most excited when I get to speak to the youth. I'm more terrified by that because, quite frankly, they are a more difficult audience. But I am always more excited because I know I will see more change by the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. My experience coincides with the Bible, praise the Lord. Over and over I have seen again that the youth are quick to change and respond to the Word of God and the Spirit of God, but adults are so slow to change. They're so set in their ways. And so when I get invited to go somewhere and speak to adults, praise the Lord, it's an honor to teach, but I wish they were younger. I wish it was the youth. No offense to anybody here who is not a youth anymore. But I think even you would agree that you are slow to change. You are. I am. We are. But not so with the youth. They are extremely spiritually receptive. Let me illustrate by using my son Isaiah. Not yet four years old. He will be four on November 11th. We're currently accepting gifts. (laughs) About six months ago or so, I was teaching through the Bible uh, in the book of Romans at Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara on the subject of considering others as more important than yourselves. We're talking through uh, Romans chapter 14 where it talks about not stumbling Christians with your behavior. Consider their spirituality is more important than yours, so on and so forth. God has been teaching me on this issue myself. I was teaching through the Bible on that issue and I brought that home and I began to teach my son because my son has a little problem sharing. 
like a lot of three-year-olds, you know, what's his is his and what's yours is his. And so I begin to share with him. Isaiah, do you know what the Bible says about this? Understand, at the time, he's, he's barely three and a half, maybe not yet three and a half. And I explained to them, if you have two of something, here's how it happened, I remember now, because he had these blue little party whistles, the ones that go, and they unravel, you know, you blow them, and they unravel those little things, he had two of them. Okay, one of them had been used much, and you know, three-year-old's very slobbery, so the thing was all wet, and it was made of cardboard, it was falling apart, it was nasty, the color was coming off, one of them was pristine. And we had a little fort in his room. Thank you, Lord. We had a little fort in his room. And he invited me into the fort. And he said, Papa, let's blow our things. And so I said, okay, great. Let's blow these little things. And so he immediately looked at him and went, hmm, and handed me the nasty one. (laughs) Opportunity to teach my son a precept of God. And so I said, Isaiah, let me teach you something. Jesus tells us that we should consider other people more important. And so when you have two of something and one is better, you give the other person the better one. You understand? He said, yeah. I said, let's try it. I gave both the whistles back to him. He held them. And I said, which one is better? And he looked and he goes, this one. I said, then which one does Papa get? And he goes, this one. You see, he's three and a half. He learned a lesson that many of you guys will never learn that I struggle with daily. He embraced it, and it is now a part of his regular life. When he has two of something, he looks and he weighs it out, and he gives the best to the other. Maybe not always. He's a sinner. He's not even yet redeemed. Please pray for the salvation of my son. But you see how he is spiritually receptive? Now, I could preach that from the pulpit with God-given eloquence, with all the scriptures, with the Holy Spirit working, and those of you will still say, well, I want the best one. And I, even the teacher, will still say, yeah, but I want the best. But a three-year-old was able to grasp that spiritual principle. Children have a tremendous capacity for spirituality in the things of God. That's why here at our church, at Reality, When you bring your kids and you drop them off, we don't just entertain them for two hours. We instruct them in the word of God. We teach them the gospel. We invite them into salvation. We seek to convert your children to Christianity. We engage them in worship. We have a children's worship team. We teach them how to pray. We give them opportunities to pray. That is why every Sunday we show you, the adults, up on the PowerPoint what all the children of reality are learning that day so that you will then go home and begin to engage them in spiritual things. Because understand this, parents. It is not the responsibility of the church to teach your kids spiritual things. We will do it as a service to God for two hours on Sunday. But the rest of the week... It is your responsibility and your responsibility alone. It begins at the home. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Bible, just before Joshua. The most quoted book in the Old Testament by Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 6.
Start in verse 1. A uh, little bit of context. Moses, speaking to the children of Israel, have not yet entered into the promised land, haven't crossed the Jordan. He's giving them some final warnings here. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Stop right there. The clear command of Scripture to the parents is that we are to diligently teach our children concerning the things of God. What does the word diligent mean? I'm asking. I haven't looked it up. I'm not sure. What does diligent mean? It means to put some thought into it, to have some perseverance in it, to work hard at it, right? You cognizantly engage in it. You do it repeatedly and continually, and you work hard at it. You're diligent at it. And this is the God-given responsibility of the parent to the kids. And you shall talk of these commandments when you sit in your house. That should be the subject of conversation. Imagine your house. Imagine you fathers. Who here is a father? Raise your hand. Who here is a father? Imagine if us fathers would sit down on the couch and instead of the television or anything else, we would just begin to speak of the commandments of God with our wives and with our kids. I tell you, the world would be changed. I tell you, the world would be changed. If we would sit there and say, kids, here's what God is all about. Here is righteousness. Here is truth. Here are the precepts of our Lord. Here's what it means to fear the Lord. Again, it's not the responsibility of the church. We will do it as a service to God for two hours a week. Two hours a week will not cut it in your spiritual lives of the kids. They have tremendous spiritual capacities. They need to be fed. They need to grow. It is the responsibility of the home. Some statistics that I just learned yesterday. If both mom and dad attend church regularly, then there is a 72% chance of their children continuing in the faith. If only dad attends church regularly, there is only a 55% chance of those children continuing in the faith. If only mom attends church regularly, there is only a 15% chance of her children continuing in the faith. Now again, This isn't because we will teach your children about God, but it is because you model to them spiritual priorities. That you show them that you have in your life spiritual non-negotiables. 
That communing with God and communing with God's people is important, that it's valuable, that it is a non-negotiable, that this is something we do as a family. Is there going to come a time that kids rebel? Absolutely, there may be. I did. But look at the chances. It's black and white. It's statistical. Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, another man that lived about 100 years ago, possibly the greatest preacher and pastor of all time, said this in a sermon entitled, Jesus and the Children. He said to his congregation, I will say broadly that I have more confidence in the spiritual life of the children that I have received into this church than I have in the spiritual condition of the adults thus received. I will go even further than that and say that I have usually found a clearer knowledge of the gospel and a warmer love to Christ in the child converts than in the adult converts. I will even astonish you still more by saying that I have sometimes met with a deeper spiritual experience in children of 10 and 12 than I have in certain persons of 50 and 60. This is not a man who didn't know what he was talking about. This is one of the greatest pastors and preachers of all history. No big deal that he said it. Jesus is saying the same thing in our text. And so that tells me, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, that we as a church ought to be very mindful of child evangelism. Child evangelism. Some more statistics for you. A Gallup survey said recently that 19 out of 20 people who became Christians did so before the age of 25. 19 out of 20. That at the age of 25, 1 in 10,000 will become believers. At the age of 35, 1 in 50,000. At the age of 45, only 1 in 200,000 will become believers. At the age of 55, only 1 in 300,000 will become believers. And at the age of 75, the chances are 1 in 700,000 that they will convert to Christ. 19 out of 20 Christians became so before the age of 25. And so if we as a church and as you as individuals in the kingdom of God are going to invest somewhere, where does it make sense to invest? Children. From a purely empirical, analytical sense, according to the raw data and the teachings of Jesus Christ, if you are going to invest your life, invest it in children. That is the best payoff, the biggest dividend. You understand that? We need to be mindful of that as individual Christians in our own calls, and we need to be mindful of that as a church. And it is my prayer this morning that God would develop in us a corporate heart for youth, a corporate heart for those who are younger than us. J.C. Ryle once again said this, A congregation which consists of none but grown-up people whose children are idling at home or running wild in the streets or fields is a most deplorable and unsatisfactory sight. The members of such a congregation may pride themselves on their numbers and on the soundness of their own views. They may content themselves with loud assertions that they cannot change their children's hearts and that God will will convert them someday if He thinks fit. But they have yet to learn that Christ regards them as neglecting a solemn duty and that Christians who do not use every means to bring children to Christ are committing a great sin. Wow. Amazing. How are most children converted? I just found this morning on the internet from the Barna Research Group, nationally respected research group, 
new data published on October 11th. This is brand new, hot off the press stuff. It says here, the presidential election has focused attention on the born-again population in the country, currently representing 38% of all adults and one-third of all teenagers. There are an estimated 98 million adults and children who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Amen. A substantial majority of the people who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior do so before reaching their 18th birthday. This insight comes from a new research study that the Barna Group, based on interviews of 992 born-again Christians nationwide, conducted. One thing I'll read to you, it says, The current Barna study indicates that nearly half of all Americans who accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior do so before the age of 13. Nearly half before the age of 13. How, primarily, are those converted? It says here, Among Christians who embraced Christ before their teen years, half were led to Christ by their parents. With another one in five led by some other friend or relative. Comparatively few accepted Jesus in response to a minister's personal prompting. Only 7%. And only one out of eight cited a special event as a turning point in their journey. Among those who mentioned events, about half identified a church service. Just 1% mentioned media evangelism or other special situations as being responsible for their conversion. The overwhelming amount of those who are converted as children, it happens under the guidance of their parents. Their parents lead them to the Lord. The next largest segment, friends or relatives. Only 7% of those who were born again at that time had the experience in church or some other special event. That's extremely low. You see, the church can't do it. We can't do it in this building. You, the individual members of the body of Christ in the church, you have got to do it. Billy Graham can't do it. Billy Graham is having his last crusade in Pasadena, California, November 18th through 21st. God bless him. God bless him but he has never led as many people to the Lord as individuals have. The facts show that. Our youth will not be won by Billy Graham. They will not be won by Reality Carpinteria. They will not be won by Greg Glory or any other large event. They will be won by the parents and the friends and the relatives. That is the design of God, and that is what Jesus is speaking about here. Amen? Oh, we're not done yet. After revealing his heart for children... And affirming their spiritual capacity, Jesus now calls the disciples to a childlike faith. In fact, he says that nobody will get to heaven unless they have a childlike faith. Let's read it in verse 15 as you go back now to Mark. Mark chapter 10, verse 15. Mark 10, verse 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it, will not be saved, will not go to heaven. You must receive it as a child receives. Now what is Jesus teaching here? What does he mean? How does a child receive? What are the characteristics of a child that we can look to for our faith? 
Well, number one, children have a humble dependence on others. I have a three-year-old daughter, or no, three-month-old daughter, excuse me. Her name is Daisy Love. You guys know that a three-month-old is 100% dependent upon her parents. She's only now out of the phase where she's not dependent upon us to hold her head up for her. Have you ever noticed how the head on a baby is exorbitantly large? And yet for some reason, maybe a product of the fall, I don't know, their neck muscles aren't developed yet. No, I know it's God's design for when we drop them on their head. But their neck muscles aren't quite developed yet, and so the head goes, and you, you pick one. Oh, and this is why I never let people hold my baby. Oh, let me hold your baby. They don't know about the neck. They're not parents, or it's been so long they've forgotten. They don't know about the neck. And they grab the baby under the arms, and I'm going like this, and as soon as her head leaves my hand, it goes, Ugh. they don't know about the neck. The child is absolutely dependent upon the parent, even to hold up his very head. Children are dependent upon their parents, and they don't mind it. Oh, they get to that age, but we're not talking about that age. They are dependent upon their parents, and it is correct. They trust in them. They are called on your tax return a dependent. The faith that we are supposed to have to enter the kingdom of God is that which makes us dependent upon Jesus Christ for our eternity absolutely dependent. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? That word poor is the strongest Greek word for poor. It means to be a destitute beggar who won't even look up at the person he's begging from. He's so ashamed of his condition. Jesus said, blessed is that sort of beggar in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, You've got to come before God saying, God, I'm a, I'm a rotten sinner. I am so wrong. God, I am begging you to forgive me. God, I'm begging you for salvation. I am utterly and totally dependent upon you for it. There is nothing good in me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to save me. You are my only hope. That is what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. Apart from him, there is no hope. And that is the way that we come to the Lord. So they have a humble dependence upon others. What else with regards to salvation? Children are extremely receptive. You sometimes, maybe I sometimes call them gullible because we like to fool them. I heard this week that um, magicians sometimes have the hardest time with very young children. Because a magician will take, make something float, and the kid goes, yeah, stuff floats, big deal. You know what I mean? They take stuff at face value. They're very receptive. You tell a kid this, and he says, okay, this, until they get to that age, but we're not talking about that age. And so we are to come to God with the same thing. God, what you said is true. I'm wrong, and you're right. The Bible declares that I'm a sinner, that apart from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, I will not experience heaven. I will experience hell. The Bible says that because of our sins, we have earned for ourselves a place in hell. God does not send you to hell. You have earned it for yourself. And you secure it when you reject the forgiveness of God. And another part of the analogy of a child is that a child receives love. And doesn't God tell us to relate to him as a father? And the father loves the child. 
And the child receives that love. That's one of the things that I, I appreciate most about my son. Isaiah, three years old. I could just finish paddling the boy for something he did wrong. And if I seek to hug him, he will jump into my arms and snuggle into my neck and embrace me and love me. It should be so with our Heavenly Father. Sometimes he has got to paddle us, if you know what I'm saying. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And it ought to be that we respond with profound love to him. Thank you, God, that you love me. Thank you that you care for me as a child. I am utterly dependent upon you for my salvation. I believe what your word says at, faith, at face value. Children accept their life situation. You understand? They know that they're dependent upon their parents and they deal with it. Indeed, they even take advantage of it. It ought to be so for those who are seeking salvation. You've got to accept your life situation that you are a sinner according to the Bible. You've got to realize that you are dependent upon the forgiveness of Jesus Christ who paid the price for your sins on the cross. That apart from him you have no hope and you must take advantage of that. You've got to appropriate that. It is not enough to know that intellectually. It's not enough to say, I believe it. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, To as many as have received him, to them has been given the right to be called the children of God. And so you must receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In order to do so, you've got to be willing to repent of your sins. You've got to come before God and say, Okay, God, I give up. You're right. I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. But you're a Savior. I am changing my mind. I am turning toward you. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. At that moment, He forgives you. And you receive it like a child, as a gift, in full faith. Thanks, pops. That's how it happens. Now, in the way that we are saved, so we are to continue in the faith. We are to continue with a childlike faith. You understand that? In other words, you who have been Christians for some time now, I'll finish with this. Make sure that in your maturing, there hasn't come a hardness. Your maturity in Jesus Christ ought to mean even more of a childlike trust in Him. Even more of an abandoned faith. Even less second-guessing. You understand? You've got to cultivate that in your heart because your flesh and the world and the enemy and your own wisdom and your own intellect and your own understanding will cause you to want to second-guess God time and time again. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And the faith that God demands is childlike and is living and is active. And so you've got to guard your hearts against growing hard and not having that simple childlike faith. You know what is wonderful about children as Warren Wearsby points out? A child enjoys much but can explain very little. A child enjoys much but can explain very little and so it ought to be in our Christian growth that we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of God. Doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to understand more about God. Who can fathom God? His ways are not our ways. His ways are unsearchable but that we enjoy more and more in an increasing sense the goodness of God, the love of God, the gifts of God, the care of God, the nurturing of God, the provision of God, that we ask less questions and we trust more. That we just enjoy our God. That is God's will for you and I. That is a simple childlike faith. Amen?
Father, thank you that you do relate to us as a father. And Lord, we know that for each one in this room, you are the father that formed us in our mother's womb. God, your word declares that you love each one here. And yet some are separated from you by sin, not yet willing to repent or surrender or lay it all down. Jesus, we acknowledge as a congregation right now that your death upon the cross proved how much you love us. That it warrants all of our love. And I would ask God that at this moment you would manifest the power of the cross in this place, that you would save people. That you would save people and that you would return them to you. Thank you that there's no one that is beyond your reach. That you love each one here incredibly and profoundly. That you are the answer to all of their questions, all of their longing, all of their concern. All that is missing, you are the answer. You are the only one who loves them perfectly and you are the only one that will never leave them and forsake them. And you may be the only one who will accept them just as they are. that's you this morning you know you're separated from the love of God but you understand that he loves you and that you need to begin a new relationship with him I'm going to ask you as we sing this song to do something very bold to get up out of your seat and come forward right here when Jesus called his disciples he called them publicly it's not an undercover thing it's the most wonderful decision a person could ever make but I'm going to ask you to take a stand and say I've been wrong and God is right and I want his forgiveness and his life and his love so as we sing this song I'll ask you to get up and just come forward there'll be a couple of you and then for those of you that you know you've just moved away from this childlike faith the heart is hard this is your opportunity to make a stand when we make a stand before our brothers and sisters it does something to the hard heart it it crumbles it because a hard heart is made up of pride. And so I'm going to ask you to get up and to come forward. And we'll pray for you as a congregation. Now it's time to do business with our Lord. So as we sing this verse.